It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. The Grind. Hello and welcome back to your August installment of The Grind. As always, I'm joined by Alex Osborne, who uh, sits with us as a with a career high ranking uh, and a couple of titles. So I'm sure her luggage is getting pretty full. Today, we're going to cover a bit of a challenger and ITF update. We're going to talk about some doping in terms of uh, Mikhail Yima and Jensen Brooksby, who have both faced bans recently. And we've got an interview with Algerian woman, Ines Abu, who there's a fair chance you've heard of, but you didn't realize you did. Alex, what's going on? Not a lot, Roddy. Just uh, still over in Europe at the moment, grinding away, playing lots of tennis. Grinding, yeah. So tell us about what's been happening recently since we last spoke. Pretty much the week after we last spoke, I think I, I won my first title in a while. Since uh, 2021, I think it was uh, with fellow Aussie, Gabriella de Silvic. So we won that in Porto. It was a W40. The week after, I won a 25 in Segovia, Spain, actually. So back-to-back titles, feeling, yeah, pretty good from the results and... Um, yeah, just really happy with with how my game's been going right now. And so leading into Porto with, I'm going to call her Gabby, despite the fact we've never met, but we're going to go with that. Um, le- leading into Porto with Gabby, you were having a pretty rough time of it, weren't you? I was really struggling for a few months, just mindset-wise where I was at with my game and, and scheduling and honestly finding partners that wanted to commit and play, you know, groups of tournaments together and, and make runs together and... Um, yeah, just I honestly a part of me almost wasn't going to go to Portugal and I was I was kind of just really at a place where I was just thinking, wow, do I take a week off? Do I go train? Do I go, go on a holiday somewhere? I was really um flat, really just down and out, honestly, with my game. And I'd committed to Gabby and I just I don't know, I spoke with a mentor of mine and was really like kind of not gonna go and I just didn't want to let Gabby down. And I, I knew that Gabby and I could do really well together. I really believed that. I just knew that mentally I was just so, so down and out. So I, I ended up making the decision to clearly go and uh, really happy I did because I, I knew and believed that we could do well. It was just um, timing wise, didn't feel right before going, but obviously being there and um, playing with Gabby, it was a great week. Yeah. I just think I'd done a lot of internal reflection the week and two we got week and two weeks before going and it just kind of obviously turned around. I don't know, a few things changed mentally. Yeah, it'll all happen for the for the good, which is fun. And so when you're in that state of mind and you get a result like this, is it relief? Yeah, it's relief because it's something you've been working towards. And I've been absolutely just pushing myself, my body, my mind to to try and get a title. And I wasn't even thinking about winning a title, obviously. I was thinking game by game at this point because I was so done. I was just trying to make it through a match. And the fact that we kind of had momentum there and we had such a tough first round. I mean, we I honestly was just like, let's just get through this first, this first get match and see how we go. And it really felt right. It felt like we really clicked. And then you know, you just go to the next match. And I, I wasn't looking ahead in the drawer. I don't normally look ahead in the drawer. I just really go by the schedule of the next day and, 
and play what lies in front of me. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. We just kind of rode the wave through the week and had this awesome momentum building. And we just felt like, I mean, I felt like it was going, obviously it was going great. And our connection on court was really good. The energy is really good. The vibe <laughs> was really fun. And we were just having a laugh and having a good time on court. And I hadn't felt like that in so long. So I feel like I'd been putting so much pressure on myself result-wise for so long to just, you know, I need results. I, I'm thinking about everything is out of my control, right? And I kind of got to a place where I surrendered and was just thinking I can't be doing everything in my own strength. I just have to trust that that something will come along and that I just can't be in control of everything because I was just digging myself into a hole so deep. So kind of letting go and um, realizing that I, I'm not completely in control of everything was was huge. Yeah, and you, you won like five tiebreakers that week, didn't you? I mean, you must have been, yeah. a, a, on on more than one occasion, you must have been like, I mean, one tennis ball away from going to the next event. Yeah, absolutely. I'm almost certain we were probably down a match point in one of those matches too from memory. I mean, yeah, on court, it was this really weird feeling of peace that I had in my body that I hadn't felt in a long time. It just felt like my soul and my gut was very still and calm. And it's the weirdest feeling to explain, but it just felt so right. Yeah, I just try to bottle that emotion now and try and replicate that each week in each match. Followed over, obviously, <laughs> into the following week. So in- instead of celebrating, you caught a bus or train back into Spain? Actually got because I, I wasn't playing any singles the following week, I got an eight-hour bus literally yeah. after winning yeah. from Porto to Madrid, which was dreadful. It was horrible. I've never done an overnight bus before. Never and I again, won't either. Be again. <laughs> <laughs> it was terrible. I didn't sleep. You know, I'm getting messages from friends saying, oh, like, congrats, you're going out to celebrate. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm on an eight-hour bus in the middle of nowhere between Portugal and Spain, can't sleep, and I've got to play a tournament next week. And honestly, I was drained. I was I was really tired. And the thought of playing again, it was exciting because I was really excited to play with Rashida. But yeah, it was a lot. And that was one of the most asked questions was, oh, what are you doing to celebrate? And I said, I'm on a bus. Um, I'm not doing anything to celebrate. <laughs> I asked you that exact question while, while you're on the bus. Yeah, no, it was uh, a quick turnaround for sure between tournaments. So it's interesting. And yeah, even after Spain, I mean, I didn't do anything. I left the next day to go to the UK uh so I haven't celebrated really since <laughs> not sure when that celebration will come but it doesn't it doesn't really matter it's it's okay um it was a good time no love it well done and your ranking has obviously uh jumped up from where it was and and I think you're still at the same point now so well into the 250s and soon to be knocking on the door of something with a one at the front which is pretty cool yeah it's exciting it's cool that it's it seems so close but Honestly, I think after a lot of that self-reflection and um, just change of mindset, I'm like not even thinking about my ranking. I didn't even look at my ranking for two weeks. My dad was like, oh, like what's your ranking at? And I said, don't tell me. Like, I don't want to know. I, <laughs> I'm so not, in my headspace wasn't there. Seriously. I just, I was so focused on what was ahead of me match-wise. I, I just didn't even think about it. It wasn't even on my radar. And even AO people have been saying, oh, you know, hopefully you get a chance next year. And honestly... I'm not holding my breath. I want to do it with my ranking. I I really don't even feel like it's on my radar right now. Seriously, I'm just so focused on trying to, you know, improve each week, 
find people that I gel well with and play well with. And I found that obviously in Gabby, which is really exciting. Hopefully we can keep playing through into America where we're going in a few weeks. Hopefully we can just building, building something together. And that's what I'm focused on right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, I think it's really cool that if, if you and Gabby continue to play together and, and play well, I think there's a, there's obviously a world of possibilities and it's really nice to hear that things have gone well. I, I remember uh, checking the phone as I got up one morning and there was a little notification on my tennis app being like a player you follow has played a match. I was like, oh, I wonder what's going on here. And then saw you won. I was, I was pretty pumped for you. So I can only imagine sort of how you felt. Moving now to what's been going on uh, more broadly in the Challenger and ITF world. So we won't be going through every result or anything like that, but just a couple of things that are probably worth noting. First off on the men's side, we obviously had the ITFs in Queensland back to back just recently. And so one of the things that came out of there was um, Aussie Luke Saville doing pretty bloody well. So Luke won back-to-back, which also came off a win at Roehampton, which is where they hold the Wimbledon qualies. And so Luke's, uh, I think, skyrocketed up to 306 in the world after starting at 580. Obviously, we know that Luke had a, a pretty ripper doubles period for a couple of years after making the final of the Aussie with Max Purcell, who's also doing exceedingly well on the singles front. But what I'm loving about seeing from Luke Saville at the moment is I think I'm just loving seeing the rise. I spoke to him in about May this year and he was in America, out of San Francisco at the time. And he was talking about how much he just couldn't resist the urge to come back and play singles. And he, you know, it was an itch he needed to scratch and he's doing that now and he's doing obviously an exceptionally good job. At the time, he wanted to be, I think, like 300, 350 in the world by grass court season or, you know, hope to be there for grass court season. And he wasn't too far off now at 306, red hot chance to be playing AO qualifying. I'm not sure how much you've had to do with Luke Alley, but he's a ripping dude and it's pretty great to see. Yeah, I'm so excited for him. He's a great guy. And I actually messaged him because we both went back to back pretty much the same week. So it was fun. Oh, you did, yeah. Congratulating each other on, on the results. So it's been awesome following his success recently. Really happy for him. I think, yeah, great player, great guy. Yeah, just stoked. And hopefully, yeah, he can keep pushing on the, that qualies uh, for AO would be unreal for him. Really, really exciting. Obviously, using, you see it a lot, you know, with players a little bit where their doubles really elevates their singles, actually, with Max as well, for example. You know, he was really doing well in the slams and those bigger tournaments with doubles. And now seeing the singles follow is really exciting. Same with Storm. So really, really awesome to see. Yeah. And Luke's done it all as well. Like I think he played something like 12 or 14 consecutive slams in doubles. And in, in the midst of doing that, you know, represented Australia at United Cup and Davis Cup, I think, correct if I'm speaking correctly. And like he was also, he partnered Demon one week and at the Paris Masters and was on center court against Novak. Like that stuff has just got to be invaluable when you're coming up against people that haven't had that. And those tense moments when you're out there and no one's watching, like obviously that's that's one challenge, but also having executed in massive moments in front of, you know, global, truly a global audience. And having done that has just got to hold you in such a great stead. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, playing crowds coming from an ITF perspective it, it's quite foreign. So I'm sure with that experience that Luke's had in the double stage is going to help him through the, his singles career now and the wave he's riding with that. Yeah, I love to say it. And on the women's side, one that really jumped out for me is a young lady that I'm guessing most people haven't heard of, but certainly one to watch, Alina Corneva. So young 16-year-old has won the Aussie Open Juniors, the Roland Garros Juniors, semis at Wimbledon, and has as a qualifier, taken out all and sundry to win a W100 event. So unsurprisingly, she's Russian, um, which they tend to produce pretty uh, red hot young athletes. And she's sort of of the mirror and driver spec as well. And so 
Corneva is an absolute star on the rise. But if you're winning a W100 event at the age of 16, with, I should add, a double bagel in the final to her poor runner-up, she's going to be certainly something. To get a title with a bagel, um, double bagel in the final is is something to say. And she's clearly sending a message with that, that she's uh, not to be messed with. And I think exactly like you said, I think Nira Andreva has obviously kind of laid that path a little bit. And girls and young girls right now are going to see these younger um, players kind of leading the way a little bit there, which we haven't seen, I think, in a little while. So it's uh, it's pretty unique. I mean, her results can speak for themselves. Clearly, she's a great player. And I'm sure that she's going to get opportunities at WTAs this second half of this year. And I can see her doing really well. And I think she's knocking on qualies um, from when I looked at her ranking. So, yeah, I would assume that we'd see her at AO qualies. She jumped up 107 places uh, as a result of the win, and she's at 220 in the world now. Yeah, um, so, so like she's 100 percent at qualies. If she's not at qualies, as she'll be, TA won't be giving any wild cards to Russia. No, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. So she'll be she'll be at qualies if she's not uh, in the top 100 by then. Uh, fun fact as well: her father was a 2008 Olympic Games bronze medalist uh, for the Russian volleyball team, as I read here. So uh, certainly in the blood, hell of an athlete. Okay, moving to something else that's happened recently: doping. Mikhail Yuma of Sweden and Jensen Brooksby of America have both been suspended, one provisionally, and we'll get to the distinction there, but suspended uh, for Yima 18 months. Jensen is indefinite for the time being for failing to declare their whereabouts. You get three strikes. Athletes of a certain ranking of context or tennis players of a certain ranking have to provide their whereabouts on an app every day saying, tonight I'm going to be in this hotel. And if you want to test me, you can test me between X hour and Y hour. You got to nominate an hour of the day in order uh, to get tested. And if you're not where you say you will be, you get a strike. And so these young gentlemen have had three strikes. And so Yima, in his case, is suspended for 18 months. And the circumstances surrounding his suspension, I think, are a bit wild. And then there's Jensen Brooksby, who, for the same issue, has been provisionally suspended. So he has accepted a provisional suspension in lieu of a determination at the moment. So he was obviously, um, or not obviously, he failed his three tests. The ITF took it, uh, gave him his you know, punishment. He's appealed that to an independent tribunal. He's at this point still innocent until proven guilty. So he could play if he wanted, but he's elected to accept a suspension so that when his determination comes in and he'll probably lose, if he's suspended for a year at that point, he might've already served nine months or whatever it is. There's a distinction here. It's like a fault versus guilt argument. So yes, they obviously should have kept their whereabouts known no they are not charged or is there any evidence that to say that they've actually failed a test unlike someone like a simona halep who is uh currently uh, banned for having failed a test sharapova was the same thing martina hingis was the same thing agassi also famously admitted to playing tennis on meth that is not the case in in this instance funnily enough when agassi did reveal he had played on crystal meth in the 90s the eight-year statute of limitations had passed and so he couldn't get punished for that at all but ali what do you think because for me i think that these are harsh penalties for things that seem trivial except for the fact that they're not and so i think that Doping has to be taken, you know, as serious as possible. I think that tennis could do a better job of taking it more serious. Yima, in his uh, instance, has said that there was a mix-up with his hotel. He wasn't really at the wrong place, you know, all this sort of thing. It's all kind of a bit like it doesn't really matter. Don't let yourself get in the position where you've failed three tests. That's my view. I think it necessarily has to be harsh and it sucks for these guys. But what do you think? These protocols are in place to make sure that the sport stays clean at the end of the day. And 
you, you know, they can argue and say all they want. You know, I was clean and all these things, but I think we need we need these protocols in place to keep it clean at the end of the day. I mean, it's it's black, it's pretty simple. But, you know, obviously everyone has a case and everyone's going to try and plead their case. And to get to a third strike and then the third strike is the one that it actually, you know, maybe he is in the right. Maybe what happened is really unfortunate and, and maybe he can prove his innocence. But, and obviously he's trying to at the moment. I think that one thing that has to be, or one thing that's sort of worth noting is like it is an extraordinarily harsh penalty not to play for 18 months. And Yema in his in his case, because he is one that has been found guilty, that's an extraordinarily large punishment for two reasons. One, it, it tarnishes your reputation and your brand. Now, of course, he hasn't been done doping, but I can't imagine his sponsors are too happy. You've then got a situation where 18 months for him is six grand slams. Or at the for the wrong 18 months, it could for the wrong period of 18 months, it could also be seven. I'm not sure what the effective date is, but as someone who's ranked 51 in the world like he is. Now, provided you keep your ranking within that top 100 or so, seven grand slams is a million dollars comfortably. If you start winning a match here or, here or there, that becomes a lot bigger. If you also take into effect or take into account, rather, all the other tournaments he's playing throughout the year, we're now talking millions of dollars that he is going to have to forego while he, I'm sure, will play, continue to play all the time and he'll train and he's going to be doing all that he can, I'm sure, to stay fit and to make sure that when he comes back, he's as, as good as ever. So for him, it's an extraordinary price to pay. For me, I don't think that changes anything. It still has to be this way. The the integrity of the sport is paramount. Obviously, it would be easier for players of, of the Novak sort of ilk at the apex of the game. He wouldn't be filling out his app. Someone's doing that for him. He's also not getting kicked out of one hotel to go to another. Like I remember my chat with Christian Harrison rather on this podcast earlier in the year, he got kicked out of a hotel last minute because there was an overbooking and the tournament just said, nah, get out. That's not happening to him. And so he's not having to think at that moment, how am I going to update my my little app? So yeah, it obviously sucks, but it has to be this way. And uh, yeah, as I said, I don't think tennis does a particularly wonderful job. I know that the ITF currently allocates four and a half million dollars a year to fight doping, which is a pittance. And if you think about all the travel costs of all the testers that need to go year round, or even just every week to all these tournaments, four and a half million dollars does not get you far. And it's nowhere near enough. Mind you, the ITF uh, has its own budgetary concerns. So yeah, I, I think that more could be done. And it's a shame that it's worked out the way for these boys. But one thing as well, Ali, with Yema, he was cleared by an independent panel of no wrongdoing. And then the ITF themselves appealed it to the Court of Arbitration for Sport which is the international body that decides these things. Maybe you're not best placed to comment as a member of the player panel, but for me, just anecdotally hearing that without knowing all the facts, that is pretty wild to think the ITF has appealed it themselves, as opposed to Yema being found guilty and then the appeal is how it's heard in the Court of Arbitration for Sport. For me, that was remarkable that a body that is also has its its duty to uphold the integrity of sport but also to protect the players it for me that was yeah really weird to hear that they appealed it incredibly odd i'm not sure how much i can comment on that i don't know it's a tough one i would definitely need to need to see more facts um and maybe there's evidence that hasn't been brought to light in public eye i'm not sure how that works but yeah obviously tough suspension especially when technically maybe he wasn't taking any drugs or anything like that but at the end of the day you don't know what players are doing what. And, you know, there's always going to be so many reasons that people are going to try and give to get out of situations. And it's unfortunate that maybe he was innocent in the fact that he wasn't uh, taking anything. But at the end of the day, we need these these rules rules in place to keep the, the sport clean. And like you said, yeah, I think funding is um, an unfortunate situation where definitely more should be given for you know I've never been tested on the ITF tour so you know and I've been playing for three and a half four years on tour kind of so 
that's kind of surprising, I guess. I, I don't even know. I've been at like maybe two tournaments where there's been testing. Look, I think that uh, more more could be done. And that 4.5 million figure is actually 2021 figure. So um, it, it will have gone up some amount, but I don't believe it's gone up any extraordinary amount. Let's move forward now to the lovely Innes Abu. So we had a chat to Innes uh, the other week and uh, she's an extraordinary, extraordinary person. I think that for anyone that's not aware or for all of you that aren't aware, uh, Innes is an Algerian who grew up as a junior hotshot, holds the record uh, for the youngest ever to win an ITF event at the age of 14 and has continued that trajectory onto the pro tour. She's, I think, about 300 in the world in doubles and 500 or so in singles, but she's said that she's looking to prioritize doubles a little bit more at, the, at this point in time. And now, you know Innes from the player panel, but I found her to be really um, mature and measured when speaking to us. Like she was speaking about her reflections about winning at such a young age and the media attention and all that sort of thing. And Lotra was really calm and like really insightful about how she reflects on that period of time. And yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the challenges of trying to play a professional sport out of an African nation that doesn't really have anything to do with tennis. I mean, for me, that's nuts. So what did you take from it? Her, her journey is incredible. I just am in awe of her story. I think at 11 years old, she pretty much leaves home with a coach and is living in France. I mean, it's, it's insane. What what parents put that much trust in a coach? You know, I feel like you don't necessarily see that very often these days. And, you know, her maturity is because of that. She has had to grow up so quickly at such a young age and 13 or 14, you know, winning huge professional title at such a young age is incredible and still holding that record. And I mean, yeah, her trials and tribulations that she goes through being from Algeria is really incredible. One thing that I'm sure you would have appreciated as well is uh, during that time in the pandemic, players were trying to rattle the tins to get some money for those at the lower level. And Dominic Team came out and said, well, I don't really think that players at that level work hard enough. I don't think they want it. I think they're slack with their diet. Like really just being a bit of a prick. And the, yeah. fact, that, the fact that she came out, you can check it out on YouTube. It's an open like an open letter, addressed his comments and sort of rallied back and said, excuse the pun, no, I don't appreciate that. And and for these reasons, like I, I think you're missing the mark and you don't understand what it's like to be in these situations. And obviously that got a ton of support uh, globally. I think that that, show, that takes a lot of courage. Yeah, she was definitely really bold in that, especially because, she, you know, people have heard of her, you know, obviously, especially through Europe, but it's not like she was one of those huge up and cut, like, she wasn't on this huge world stage where everyone knew her. And I think to come out as a player in support of this was huge from an ITF level as well. And um, the support she got from so many different people globally, from the president to Billie Jean King and so many huge players was just really awesome to see tennis kind of coming together for what she was so importantly talking about was, was really special during the time. And I remember when it all came out and, everyone was just so supportive of her doing so because it was really important. You know, already we don't get enough money for this level. So the fact that she was coming out and saying this and other players were, were backing her was was really important during that time period. 100%. And like if Billie Jean King is supporting you, someone who is like the woman who's like a social beacon for tennis, you're obviously doing something right. So that must have been pretty surreal for her. Let's check it out. Thanks for having me here. Tell us where we found you at the moment. Mo mostly like North Paris in the suburb. What I was wondering, uh, I guess the first thing that comes to mind when I see your profile and I Google your name is you're from a country that is unusual in a tennis sense. We don't see lots of Algerian tennis players. So can you tell us what it's like growing up 
in Algeria trying to play tennis as a young woman? You know, what, were there lots of junior pathways? Oh, so basically when I started, I was like six and uh, tennis is not like the, the most famous sport in Algeria. It's like mostly like football and mostly in Africa is yeah football so but in Algeria it was very tough first I started when I was six because the tennis club was very close to my house it was like five minutes so it was basically destiny and uh, it's what I discovered and I was in school actually so when like two coaches came and they were promoting tennis in Algeria and I just went and tried and since that day I didn't like quit uh, having a racket in my hand but the thing is, the, there's not like many tournaments there. There's like a lot, like a program for tennis, you know. It was at the first, it was just for fun. And uh, when I started playing good, let's say around eight, I started like competing, but not in Algeria. So basically in the holidays, like summer holidays or winter holidays, I was going to France to play some tournaments. And this is where, like, I really start uh, playing tennis in competition. But in Algeria, it was like, well, at this age, it was still fine because I, I have, I wasn't like, I haven't like the very good level, like high level. So at eight, I could still practice there, like with my coaches. And then um, I think when I started, like, to be like going for professional, I was like eleven. This is where I start playing like tennis Europe and juniors. Yeah, so basically it was tough in Algeria, so I had to travel and travel like outside. It was like very expensive and for uh, for us as well, it's very tough because we need a visa to travel. So I was trying to manage between as well school. So at 11, I was already homeschooled. So it was a very tough decision for my parents as well, like to be homeschooled. And it never happened in Algeria in tennis. Like no one did it before like this. So it was the first time no one, like everyone thought I was like crazy. My parents were crazy as well to take this decision. Uh, so I had to deal with that as well with the like family that didn't agree, you know. <laughs> Unbelievable. And you, siblings, like brothers or sisters, did you have anyone yeah, who played have, tennis? I have two siblings, but no one played tennis. I was the only one in the family that played tennis. If if you're a young a young girl in Algeria and you're you're starting at age of eight and, and nine to play good tennis. How do you decide to then go to France and play? Does Do you have coaches that say you should take this opportunity? How, how does that happen? So basically, it, like the first coach I had, he was from France. Like he, he's, he was Algerian, but from France. And he knew a little bit like how it goes in France, like the tournament. So when he came to Algeria, he had a bit of this experience. So about the tournament in France, you know, the national tournament. It was not even uh, tennis Europe or whatever. We st I started really like with national in, in the small cities in south of France or in Paris. Uh, this is how I started like playing tournament. Because in Algeria, the, there's like almost no tournament. And the level wasn't that that good as well and i wasn't a part of the federation it was already like tough because it was a, like something private well not really private but let's say it was it wasn't with the federation that was the hardest thing as well so at the beginning is i still like i wasn't in the federation i was really like alone when you were you were 11 were you 
you weren't traveling with the federation you're not my parents so i was traveling with this coach okay wow like in the first international tournament i played was when i was 11 it was bressure tournament i don't know if you know under yeah it was the under 12 so i played bressure under 12 and uh, le mans les petits coq it was my first tournament my first win international tournament so it was this is the like the first big win, let's say, in the career. That is absolutely wild. Not yet. I was still in Nigeria, but traveling. I started traveling more because mm-hmm. to play tennis to Europe and the ITF. Well, ITF I started a bit uh, later, but it was mostly tennis to Europe. So I won like uh, my first one. I think it was. I don't remember, but I think it was in Denmark. My first tennis to Europe, but. And then I know that the um, I won one tournament. It was in Italy in Rome, so it was one grade one at the at back at the time. It was one grade one. It was like such a big tournament in tennis Europe on clay courts. And later on that year, I have won my first uh, professional tournament. Do you still hold the record for the youngest woman to win an ITF? Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? 14 at the time? To be honest, that week, I don't know how I played. <laughs> but it was like, I didn't have any pressure. It was like an amazing week, obviously. And it was my first uh, like professional tournament and it was at home. It was in Algeria. Well, it wasn't my home city, but uh, it was one of the first tournaments. I think my parents as well came to see me because I wasn't playing in Algeria. So they didn't have the chance to watch me play in the in tournament so they came for the final like i think they came for the final so uh, yeah that week it was crazy well now i can realize that it was crazy what i did but when i was 14 i didn't realize like for me it was just like another tournament like another junior itf whatever tournament you know it wasn't for me in my mind it wasn't that crazy but i remember that the media in algeria went crazy and this is where I started, like, to they start, like, more talk about 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 me in the media in Algeria. Started at that time also, like, I started to feel a bit more pressure as well because for me, I was fourteen and that was I wasn't really realizing what it was happening. But then when you have all the media having focus on you and it was like a first time, so yeah, this is. The part that I didn't like, let's say, but but it was still a very good week. That's amazing. Unreal. I mean, the barriers that you've already mentioned that you've had to overcome at such a young age to get to where you are today is is incredible. Can you touch a little more on, on the visa barrier that you um, experienced? Oh. I know we've spoken a little bit about it before in our yeah, 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 um, yeah. players' meetings, but that's a big one that a lot of countries yeah. don't have to go through. Yeah, yeah like the visa stuff, it's, it's tiring. Well, at that age, I wasn't traveling that much that now, than now. Now, I feel like the struggle is even more. But I I started, like, since my first tournament, I started to have this kind of problem with the visa. So, so I remember, basically, once my passport wasn't expired, but you need to have pages in the passport. And you have, you have to... To get like a minimum two pages, you know, to have a visa. And the two pages have to be one in front of the other one. I had two pages, but one like this and one in the back, you know. And I didn't know that. I was young. I was maybe 13 or 14. So I went to apply for a visa and they told me, no, we cannot. So I had to do my passport again and it wasn't expired. So I had to explain why I have to do my passport again and... At such a young age, well, I had obviously my parents helping me with that, but still, 
it's a struggle because maybe now it's my fifth passport that I'm using already because I don't have any, like pages anymore. So so the visa thing also is you have to do it, let's say, twice a year. Now I have to do it like twice a year because they don't give you long long stay. So And you cannot stay more than three months, like in Europe, for example. So I have to go out and go in again. That sucks sometimes because we cannot really, I cannot really schedule like uh, when, when I have to do the schedule for the, for the tournaments, always have to think about this. Like I cannot even go to Turkey, Egypt, all these countries, I need a visa. So Europe as well, the US or whatever. Almost, yeah, almost every country, like, I need a visa to go. So it makes my problems feel so small, (laughs) you know, because sometimes for me, I just jump to a different country week to week and I really am so fortunate I don't have to think about. Just the stress because you have always to, I always keep it in my mind. Like, now I'm in Paris, but I know, like, it's been a month that I'm in Europe. So I know, like, in less than two months, I have to go out and find, like, tournament out in the Europe zone. This is, I have, like, I have it in my mind, you know, so I have to count every day that I'm here, you know. Algeria is an African country and for like Schengen area, the Europe area, you need a visa to, to go there. And it's just like, the for the pages, it's just sometimes I don't have any more space. So I have to do again my passport to, to get a new one. And the thing as well with the visas is you cannot do it. Like if I'm here in Paris and I need a visa, I don't know, for Japan, for example, I cannot do it from here because I'm not resident in the country. So this is tough as well. As a tennis player, you're traveling almost, I don't know, every week. And just imagine like being in Japan, playing a tournament and you need a visa to the US. So I have to go back to Algeria to do my visa. You know, I cannot do it in the country where am I? So even now, if I want like to win time and say, okay, I can maybe do my visa for the US here in Paris, I cannot do it. I have to go back to my country where I reside, where I have my residence and do it to apply for it. Ridiculous. How often do you go back to Algeria then? Not not that much because when I'm... Bit fortunate that sometimes that I know people that can help me with my visa stuff and they have contacts, but it's always like emergency. Mm. So it's always an emergency uh, thing that uh, people like do it for me because they understand the situation, but it's last minute stressful. I think this is one of the most stressful parts, like to do the visa thing, because even when you apply for it, you just don't get your passport like two days later. You have to wait at least at least one week. This is when it goes like the quickest. One thing you spoke about before was when you won that tournament when you were 14 as the youngest woman to win an ITF professional tournament. And you said that the pressure and the media speculation and the, and the coverage that you received in Algeria was, was quite a lot. When you look back and when you reflect on that, do you think that that made life harder for you? Or do you think that you you benefited from that experience? How, mm-hmm. how, do, you, how do you feel about that? Because that is a lot. And most people, at the age of 15 that's or 14 that's not something that they have to go through of course like for me it was at that time pressure and it was like hard to handle i think i won with with the i won a lot of experience because now i i can like handle a bit more the pressure and yeah at such a young age sometimes it's it's tough because you get but like you get known by people in the street and that was like only 14 15 and and that was like so sometimes it was like crazy, but but 
I didn't benefit that much in the sport part. But I think as a person, yes. As a person, I had, of course, to grow a little bit faster to realize that things uh, were changing as well for me. And also I realized that I can do something in tennis and this also like put me a bit more pressure because the expectation was very high in my country as well. So that, I think that was the most difficult part. But right now, yeah, it's it's experience. So it was... it's. I take it as a good thing. Yeah, I mean that's that that is wild, and and I think that there's a certain part of me that is jealous of you for having been through that. Not only because uh, you're a professional tennis player, but uh, the the idea of having to go through that at, at that age and then being able to benefit from that is massive. Because most most of the people I surround myself with, we didn't have to go through anything like that, and therefore we don't get the benefit of anything like that. One thing I wanted to really unpack with you in particular, Ines, is during the pandemic, you gained, I guess, some notoriety or, or some attention yeah. online. Yeah. Um, for, for background, the, the pandemic arrived. There was a push by top players to provide some financial support to players, you know, from 100 down to 500 or, or something. Almost everyone was supportive of that, except for... One hand backhanded Austrian uh, by the name of Dominic Dominic Team, who effectively said that those outside of the top hundred don't work hard enough, uh, something to that effect. And then yeah. you you responded to him. So can you can you tell us about what happened, what you said, and then what came after that? So basically, I was stuck in Tunisia alone. Well. Uh- the first month I was alone. Uh, thankfully, I have known like some Tunisian there, so it was easier a little bit after. But the beginning of the pandemic, no one didn't know what to do, whatever. It was the unknown for everyone. And then, yeah, it was like very hard, like a very hard time. When you see play big players, like thinking about the tour and, you know, it was like, like some fresh air at that time to see like people like could gather to de- gather together and help each other. So it's always nice to see it. When Dominic said that, I felt hurt, you know, because player, it, it wasn't about the money because he had the right to do whatever he wants with his money. It was mostly about the respect. Alex know the circuit and I guess you know as well how it goes in the tennis tour and it's a very harsh word. So when I hear, I hear like someone like Dominic, like he should be the one who knows the best at his level that how hard it is to get there. Of course, I understand that there is player that they don't care, but there is player they don't care even in top 100. Like, mm. And everyone is free to do whatever he wants. Um, but most of the most of the players, they are struggling. Like financially, mentally, it's, it's a tough world where you travel almost alone when you don't have a coach, where where sometimes you have, I don't know, to, to do like four or five, like uh, like Alex have done this, like to take a bus by night or whatever. So it's not easy. And when I heard these words, like it was like knife, like someone <laughs> gave me with a knife and it was very hurtful. So I was speaking like with my manager and we were just talking about it and we say we can, we just have to reply. We cannot just say nothing about it so when i did the video like i didn't expect it at all like to go this wild like for me it was just to start with a reply and i just did like 
consciously, like I said, we have just to reply to these words that we cannot accept, you know, and this is how it went. So uh, yeah, I didn't expect like the video to go this wild. And it was crazy, to be honest. I know so many players backed you and were just so supportive of you yeah. coming out. It was just amazing. Yeah. And I know some big players like uh, I think Nick Curios and yeah. Venus and I think even the Algerian president um, yeah. replied. Yes, even uh, Billie Jean King replied as well. And it was like I didn't expect it at all. Like it was crazy. I received maybe more than thousands messages it was at first it was overwhelming because i didn't expect it but it's also nice like to see people supporting each other and uh, that was mostly gathering you know for something good because they they, they were trying to help uh, each other in that difficult time because me i, I was taking it like mostly it was covid and uh, the tour was off people were like uh, some losing their lives it was uh it was nice like to see the tennis community gather all together for something good and um, for me uh, it was crazy times because i had like many as well coverage like media coverage and pressure as well did anything happen after that like yeah you you your phone has obviously exploded with messages oh, and yeah. your your uh your status has arisen. Did um, did you keep in touch with any of these individuals that reached out to you, or or did you receive any form of support? I mean, obviously, you would have received lots lots of emotional support, but um, was there anything further that came there? Further, not that much. It was mostly emotional support, like everyone sending me messages privately, and but that's that's all it was my uh, i had some help a little bit in algeria but not that much at the beginning but it wasn't something crazy it was mostly emotional support can you tell us also now about the player panel that you're on with alex i mean it's obviously yeah. a very important role that you have and we spoke to uh connie perrin recently who's very yeah. passionate very passionate about uh players having the opportunity to continue to um, yeah. earn more for their work and have more playing opportunities with the 10K going up to the 15K yeah. and the W40s are a new event. Before, yeah, yeah so. which um, one of us on the call here recently won a doubles title, a double W40. But, um, I mean, these are all things that are very important. And so what do you what do you prioritise out of the, the player panel? So for me, it's something important because... First of all, it's a voice as well for the players because we didn't have this before. So it's like a bridge to talk with the ITF and stuff. And we're trying to improve like the tour as much as we can, obviously. Sometimes it's not always easy, but I think we made a few improvements like where you can see the W4Es. Also, like the third set in uh, the ITF, like tw uh, more 40 and above. We're trying also to improve like the mental health of the players and stuff. So to bring more tournaments, like when we compare to men's, 
like we still uh, we still a bit a bit lower but i think there is some improvement so for me it's very important that we can bring more like equity equality with the men's as well the men's tour to have more opportunity to be a bit more fair with everyone to have like a fair tour no absolutely i think it's it's very important what you're doing and i know alex is obviously super proud of of her involvement and um everyone so far we've spoken to that's on the panel as well is obviously very proud um in i want to say thank Thank you very much for joining us. It's obviously a busy time for you, and you've obviously got a lot to to, to be worried about with with visas and the like. And um, we thank you for for hopping on yeah, and joining us at the grind. Thanks to thanks. you. It was very amazing. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Inez. All right, that wraps up the grind for this month in August. We'll be back next month. See you soon. The first serve is your home of tennis at thefirstserve.com.au. Log on to find out all the details of our live radio show, other podcasts. Read weekly features by our team of writers and follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and subscribe to our YouTube channel.